0: Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. This is your host, Bob Clark. We have a special guest today. We have Steve Vinnick of the law firm of Joseph Greenwald and Lake in Greenbelt, Maryland. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. As always, any of the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College, its employees, staff, or students. Second, another caveat. Any legal advice that is forthcoming from this show is general in nature and is not intended to be specific legal advice for your individual legal situation. If you have a legal question, contact a lawyer and make sure that you acquaint them with the facts of your individual situation. Starting off today, I'd like to ask Steve a question about how it is you chose to go into law.
1: That's a great question. When I was in ninth grade, I read a little book. Called To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm familiar with it. By Harper Lee. And um, I was absolutely entranced with Atticus Finch and what happened in that trial. And at that point, I decided I really wanted to be a lawyer. And that's what started me off.
0: So, is there any family background in law?
1: No, I am the only lawyer. Um, My father is a civil engineer, my mother's a lab technician. And uh, my sister ended up going into more of a public relations uh, job, although she's now a teacher. But no, I was the only one that wanted to go into law.
0: A worthy undertaking. I am the only lawyer in my family other than my wife. So you grew up in the area.
1: Yes, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland.
0: And you matriculated to the University of Maryland College Park back in the 80s sometime?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, back then, I don't think I could have said the word matriculated, but I, uh, I did. I attended Maryland from 84 to 88. Uh, it was a very interesting time because in 1986 was when. Lenny Lenby. Bias. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. And just, uh, it was a really, it was a sea change in terms of what was going on, not just with Maryland, but I think nationwide with their, their sports programs. but. We weathered that storm, but it was very... And there, I bring that up now because of what's going on with Jordan McNair oh, uh, yeah. at, at, at Maryland. And uh, while there's not totally identical, of course, there's certainly some similarities between the two.
0: Do you have a feeling at this point in time what direction that process is going to go?
1: I, I really don't. The fact that President Lowe said the magic words to any plaintiff's lawyer, we are legally and morally responsible for what happened to Jordan McNair, uh, is a huge indication that I think they really just want to get that case settled. I uh, don't know what they're going to do with the coach. And uh, the se- I know that the Walters report is out, but they're waiting for the second report uh, to, um, to see exactly what's going to happen.
0: I think there was a fairly ominous column in the Washington Post yesterday by Christine, I think it was Christine Mm Brennan, writing, or maybe it was even today, I think I read it online yesterday, about getting rid of Durkin and and why it's taking so long. Yeah. It does seem puzzling. For any of the listeners who aren't aware, a University of Maryland football player died last spring, Um, seemed to be considerable evidence that they had not taken care of his heat stroke properly, and further, that they did not promptly take measures that perhaps would have saved this young man's life. It's a horrible situation. Yes. and
1: uh, Tragic. Really, just tragic.
0: You know, as a Maryland fan, you kind of put it aside and just feel for the family. I think Billy Murphy up in Baltimore is representing the family.
1: Yes. Now. Yes.
0: I guess one of the questions I would have, because I know your firm has had tremendous success in the area of suing governmental entities. Yes, And the question I have is, of course, and this is something our audience typically does not know, but... When you sue a governmental entity, there are state and, and local laws that limit how much money you can recover against these entities. My recollection is the State Torque Claims Act is presently $400,000. That's correct. And I see these things about the McNair family wanting millions and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm puzzled how it is they can get more than $400,000 from a state entity like the University of Maryland or the University of Maryland Board of Regents. Do you know anything about how that works?
1: Yes. So whenever there's a lawsuit that's going to be filed against a municipality, the client and, of course, the lawyer have a choice to make, either to keep it in state court or to put it in federal court. If it's in federal court under a specific statute, then at that point there is no cap on the damages, and the prevailing lawyer would have an opportunity also to recover their attorney's fees and their costs. And so the caps that are applicable in state court would not apply. If you sue in state court uh, pursuant to, uh, under the uh, Local Government Tort Claims Act, which is the statute that allows you to go forward with that kind of a lawsuit, then you're subject to the caps. You're subject to the $400,000 cap, and I think it's um, $800,000 per occurrence, but that's that's exactly what, what would happen. Right.
0: So just again, by way of explanation for our audience that may not be quite as legally sophisticated about things, This business of being limited in the amount of money that you can get against the state or against a county and different governmental entities is actually a substantial improvement over the state of the law historically in that it is a waiver of what we call sovereign immunity, right?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: And I think that actually the Tort Claims Act went up from 200 to 400 a few years ago. It
1: it did. uh, I think it was three years ago. Yes.
2: Is this sort of like you can't sue the king?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So, what what, um, Mr. Steinhorn is saying is that you can't, when when, by saying you can't sue the king, what he's saying is that you can't sue your sovereign, you can't sue your ruler, and uh, the same is true of your your municipality or your government, unless they waive, meaning they allow you to pursue a suit against them under certain, with certain requirements and under certain conditions. And in this case, that's exactly they've waived their immunity to $400,000, up to $400,000.
2: Could you explain to us what legal theory would be used, what facts would support the legal theory under a federal civil rights action? Because clearly, if my choice is to hire a lawyer, and my choice, according to my lawyer, is to file in federal court or state court, and the lawyer says if I file in state court, I get $400,000, but if I file in federal court, there's no limit. It doesn't seem like any lawyer would then file in state court. They would file in federal court. So what facts would support the claim in federal court? In other words, what is the claim in federal court and what facts here would support
1: it? We'll take, as an example, your run-of-the-mill excessive force case.
0: And so, we're talking about like a police excessive yes, force Yes.
1: So a police officer, uh, let's say, has uh, roughed you up and has tased you, and, uh, and, and there was really no basis for that type of excessive force to have been used, and— if there were any charges the charges are dropped so at this point you can either file a lawsuit for excessive force under the Maryland constitution and so for so that our listeners will know this we have not only a United States Constitution, but the state of Maryland has its own state constitution. And you have uh, certain articles, Article 24 and Article 26. Declaration of Rights, baby. Correct. In order to be able to uh, be free from excessive force or free from searches and seizures by, by the police. So if you sue under that uh, constitutional uh, deprivation of rights and under, under the Maryland Constitution, then you're subjected to the cap. If you sue under what's called uh, what we call a 1982 action, which is the federal cause of action, then uh, you can, you'll even if you sue in state court, the case will be removed, meaning it'll be literally taken from state court and put into federal court. The reason, as a lawyer, that you want to oftentimes recommend strongly to put the case in state court rather than in federal court is really because of the difficulty that you will encounter in federal court of trying to get a verdict which is favorable to a plaintiff, to the claimant. Is
0: that because of how the jury is constituted or because of the judges, or to what do you attribute that?
1: It's two things. One, there are other defenses and immunities that can be raised in a federal cause of action. Uh, which means that if you sued in state court, they wouldn't they wouldn't have that immunity, but they'll do they do have that immunity in federal court.
0: Let, let me just stop you for one second because again, we're getting into some legal terminology that I think is important, and that the idea of immunity. What is the idea of immunity? Who's immune, and that sort of thing?
1: So immunity means that, uh, and it's it's really just what you may have heard of and. On TV or in the movies, where someone has immunity and then they're going to testify against somebody. Okay. And it sort of works the same way in terms of uh, different uh, what we call state actors, which could be police officers or could be other governmental officials who are immune, meaning that you cannot sue them unless it's under a specific or sometimes often very narrow reason. Okay. Uh, For example, judges are immune from their decisions. You, you know, the, a judge can be, reco- you know, you can refer a judge to what's called the Judicial Disabilities Commission, which is the commission that oversees judges and makes sure that they are acting as a way a judge should. Or you can try to have the judge impeached, but you can't sue a judge. And many state actors, governmental officials, law enforcement officers, they don't have immunity to that level, but they certainly have some immunity. So Which
0: protects them from being sued.
1: Exactly right exactly right. And the other thing in federal court is that it's a much longer road. And let me explain what I mean by that. Sure. In federal court, if you as the plaintiff are successful in, let's say, a hearing on a motion, what we call for summary judgment, which would be a motion to get the case literally dismissed, would be to end the case, and you're the person bringing the claim, and you are successful The defense, the government, has an automatic right to what we call an interlocutory appeal, which means that you don't have to wait till the very end of the case. They can appeal it right then and there. And they'll go down to the Fourth Circuit, which is in Richmond. And uh, at that point, they'll get an independent review of what the facts were as found by the district court and what the decision was and it's either affirmed or uh, denied if it's affirmed it's then remanded back it's sent back to the federal court and then you continue on with your case ultimately to have a trial
2: but why would the alleged negligence of the university of maryland coaching staff be a federal violation i understand excessive force the constitution protects us from excessive force from governmental authorities but what would be what would give rise to a federal action for a player dying from heat stroke?
1: That's a great question, and I'll be the first to admit I do not specifically know the answer to that question.
2: But would you but, would you agree that it's likely they're going to try and bring it in federal court oh, a, or yeah, under the federal statutes?
1: Absolutely, and I, I I think what I think they're going to do is they're going to bring it under one of the uh, United States statutes. I think is it Title Nine. Don't quote me on that, but it's one of the United States statutes that governs essentially the rights of students in not only uh, s- school but also in universities, especially a state-run university. Um, that now, now uh,
2: that makes sense to me, and I hadn't thought
1: of that. And and that's and that's how they're going to do it. And if they can do it that way and allege a cause of action that w- where there was a violation of that U.S. S- statute, they'll be in federal court. They can. They won't be subject to a cap. Maybe. I was going there next. Yep, yep. Maybe. There's an issue about that as well. Um, But they'll also get their attorney's fees and their costs back if they're successful.
0: This has become a slightly esoteric discussion, but I think it's kind of an interesting one for people who are interested in the law. So we talk about caps. and. What they are essentially are legislatively created. The state legislature in Maryland creates limitations on how much money you can get from a state employee or a county employee or a municipal employee or entity. There also are independent caps in the state of Maryland, again, legislatively created for what we call non-economic damages. Could you give a brief discourse on what that means and how that might come into play in a hypothetical case similar to the McNair case?
1: Sure. Sure. So uh, what, what Bob is talking about are there essentially are two types of damages, what we call economic damages and non-economic damages. Economic damages are those damages that you can actually put a number to. The Person goes to the doctor and incurs a bill of $100. The person loses time from work and lost $500 from their work. The person's going to need uh, another, uh, let's say, prosthetic leg, and that's going to cost $25,000. So those are what we call economic damages. Non-economic damages are pain, suffering, mental anguish, uh, inconvenience, humiliation, embarrassment, loss of enjoyment of life if it's the death of someone uh, we call those salatium damages. It's essentially the same thing.
0: Married couples, loss of consortium. Loss of
1: consortium. And it, this goes to loss of affection, loss of companionship, loss of guidance. Uh, and what what the Maryland legislature has done, the federal legislature has not done this, thank God, yet. And we hope that they still don't. Uh, but They're the, trying. Yeah, they are trying. That's what we call tort reform. But what the Maryland legislature has done, and they're not the only ones who have done this, is to place – Limits, what we call caps, on how much a person can receive for their non-economic damages. And uh, you know, if it's funny, if you go uh, if you go right over the border into Washington D.C., they have no caps. There are no limits in Maryland uh, and Virginia operates the same way. Maryland, there are limits on exactly how much a person can recover for non-economic damages. It's a number that does go up every year. The jury, if it's a jury trial, is never told. Never, ever told, never instructed about the fact that there's a limit on what they are awarding for non-economic damages. So, for example, a person can be catastrophically injured due to the negligence of somebody. Let's say it's a big, horrible trucking accident, and the person is going to need medical care that's very expensive for the rest of his or her life, and it's going to be painful, and the jury says, we're going to give this person... In Maryland, they're going to give them $5 million for their pain and suffering and their non-economic damages. And the judge, as a matter of law, is going to have to knock that $5 million down to whatever the limit is that would apply at that time.
0: One of the things that one sees occasionally is a jury thinking we're going to give a big pain and suffering award, but the defense brings in an expert who kind of knocks at your economic damages and they compromise on that. And the jury does not realize that they are... Treating your client very badly. It, it, I, I'm a fan of legal realism where you actually tell the jury what the law is, mm-hmm. you know, because the judge instructs them on so many facets of it, but you don't instruct them on the fact that if you award $10 million because of some horrible catastrophic event, that they may only keep. 800,000
1: or something like that. Not right. that that's
0: an inconsequential amount of money, but if you're a, a paraplegic or a quadriplegic due to someone's negligence, it's it's hardly just.
1: I, I, you're preaching to the choir, yeah. I couldn't agree more, and I'll, I'll tell you this too. Uh, people who have suffered, and I, I always use this example, burn injuries, The people who have suffered burn injuries endure a pain that I honestly think is like no other. And it is a pain that's constant, it doesn't go away, it, it with burns, you have a constant fear of infection. so the burn wound and the wounds have to be cared for and redressed and redressed several times a day. And then after the burn is gone, after if a person's finally able to get some relief from the pain, they're left with a horrible scar. and I just I, I think I use that as an example every time you talk about limits on non-economic damages because they're they're just our injuries that really I don't think should ever have a cap on it. but
0: and again, in this area, uh, in medical malpractice cases, they try even harder to restrict the damages people can get. Yes. And, and you know, giving, well, all manner of credits for bills that have been paid and a, a somewhat different non-economic damages cap than if you, you could get the same injury in a car accident or you get it at the hand of a doctor, you get less money if the doctor does
1: it. I tell people all the time, if you go to a doctor, and you're in the parking lot and the doctor runs you over, you're going to get more money on that case than you are if you go to the operating room and the doctor makes a mistake and kills you.
0: It is so okay? true.
1: Absolutely. And that's it's a very unfortunate fact, but the, the medical malpractice defense lobby is a very powerful lobby. So I was going
0: to ask you, why are these things allowed to occur?
1: They're allowed to occur because of several reasons. One, one is... And again, you're going to get this from the perspective of a plaintiff lawyer. Sure, you represent the injured party. Correct. I exactly. And uh, my belief is that one, there is a horrible misperception about these types of cases. Um, it's a lot of it is what has been portrayed either in TV or the movies, but it's become an unfortunate. Fabric of our society where everyone thinks that if you do personal injury, you're an ambulance chaser, you're a shyster, you can't be trusted, you're just, you know, it's just.
2: I believe this all started with the McDonald's hot coffee case it, that resulted in a $6 million verdict for an elderly lady who spilled coffee in her lap and suffered extreme burns. But if you get into the facts of that case, it's a supportable verdict, and you can understand it. But that became the poster child for lobbyists who wished to change the laws on caps on lawsuits
1: it, that that was the poster case. And the shame of it all is that if you you know peel it back and see the facts, the the burns, and again, these were this was a burn injury, were outrageous all over the this poor woman's thighs, her genitalia.
2: And there were hundreds of people that suffered these injuries and notified McDonald's. And it was found out during the trial that McDonald's heated their coffee to over 200, to over 200 degrees so that the drive through customers would have hot coffee when they got to their offices 15 minutes later. They knew how dangerous that was. They also <laughs>
0: had a statistical model that they built in paying for a certain number of severe burn cases because their coffee sales were so astronomical. So when the jury did the computation of the damages at the time, they had the information available to them about how much money McDonald's made for their coffees. And the fact that they had built this into their coffee pricing and their profits. It's just horrifying to think that a corporation, would build in, oh, we're going to catastrophically injure a certain number of innocent people, and that's what it was. And it's just as appalling to me, and I don't mean to get carried away, that this would then become a reason to restrict people who have legitimately had terrible injuries to minimal recoveries. In Maryland, for the longest time, when they first enacted this law, it was $350,000 in non-economic damages. And, again, don't want to get on my high horse, but if you're a lawyer, and I have been, and I know Steve has, and, and my partner Alan Steinhorn has where you're representing people in these cases, if you're doing a medical malpractice case, you're likely going to do it at a 40% contingency because you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars and tons of time. Well, if you give somebody $350,000, you take away 40% of that, then you take away what you paid the experts. You might have somebody with a catastrophic injury or death who's going to walk away with $100,000, even though the jury gave them $10 million.
1: That's sadly we, correct. We
2: had a case about 10 years ago with a $10.1 million verdict reduced mm-hmm. to
1: $650,000. And I was going to say, just to end the McDonald's sure. discussion, two things. One, there's a wonderful movie. It's a documentary. It's literally called Hot Coffee. I think you can see it on HBO or on Netflix still. The second thing is, when everyone hears the McDonald's case, they always think $6 million. That woman verdict was reduced to $500,000. That's what the judgment was meaning that it was reduced after the jury came back.
2: And the $6 million, if I recall correctly, represented McDonald's
0: nationwide profit on coffee only. For one day i
2: believe you're right that's how they came to that verdict.
1: correct
0: one of the things that is also often lost on people because i get in discussions about things there is a perception that personal injury lawyers sometimes are, are you know as you say ambulance chasers but that any verdict that is rendered in a case is subject to review by the trial judge who sat through all the evidence saw all the witnesses and is intimately familiar with the details so if there's outrage over a multi-million dollar verdict, the judge can take action and if the judge chooses not to, it's an independent set of eyes who is sophisticated, has seen numerous trials and understands what the evidence was and what should be sustained.
2: Absolutely. So if you suffer a serious injury, you better contact a lawyer that knows about these laws.
1: I absolutely right. Yep, it's, it's you know, it's funny. I, I tell people uh, when, whenever I get the question, well, do I really need a lawyer? I always say, well, let me ask you this question. Do you ask yourself, do I really need a doctor? It's one thing if you have the common cold, but let's say it's not getting better. Let's say, uh, yeah, you need a doctor. It's the same thing with a lawyer. Talk to a lawyer.
2: And when you call the insurance company after your accident and the other drivers at fault and you call their insurance company, what do you do when their insurance rep says, you don't need a lawyer for this?
1: You ignore that person. That person is not there to give you advice that was going to benefit you. That person is giving you advice that will benefit the insurance company. And make no mistake, You are not a person. You are a number. That is what you are. And you will represent another number when they pay out whatever they need to pay out. But Steve,
0: they're good neighbors. They're
1: good neighbors. You're in good hands. Good hands. They have cute geckos. Absolutely right. It doesn't matter. How cynical. I am cynical, but I'm also Well, they're even more cynical than you. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Uh, Again, I don't want to get too esoteric, but there are times when you have an auto accident where you have to end up... Um, let's say the person who strikes you has no insurance. And so you make a claim against your own insurance company because you have insurance in case you get hit well, by... Well, they'll take care of you because you've paid them premiums all these years and they're supposed to help you, right? <laughs> they are supposed to. But the biggest, some of the biggest fights I will get into will be with the insurance companies on on these types of claims. And my my clients hate it. They say exactly what you said, Alan. Well,
2: that's is, because your own insurance company then becomes your adversary
1: on that claim? That's correct. Yep. Even though they can't raise your premiums because you're not the at-fault driver, but they become your adversary and they will fight tooth and nail for to every last penny. Uh,
0: Taking that exit down the road, I have a trial in two weeks in Prince George's County and almost exactly that situation. And one of the things is you would think that you could go in before a jury and say, Joe Smith has paid premiums of $2000 a year for 20 years to, you know, Allstate Nationwide State Farm And and the person who's on the other side is an employee of the insurance company that my client has been paying for 20 years. So you're in court with any of these insurance companies trying to get fair compensation. And the courts are increasingly restrictive on what they will let you say and what they will let you say about the other lawyer who is effectively being paid by your insurance premiums to fight your
1: Case. Number one, there's no uniformity, unfortunately, where, um, with these with the courts in terms of what you'll be allowed to do. Different judges do different things. Absolutely. So, in, in, in your normal automobile accident case, where John Smith is suing Mike Doe, the word insurance is verboten. You cannot. Can not, I mean forbidden. You can it's not absol- it is an It is an automatic mistrial. You can't talk about it, you can't mention it, you can't insinuate it, you can't do anything like that. It can't come up. But in the cases where you're suing your own insurance company, some judges will allow you to say the word insurance, some judges will not allow you to say it. Some judges will allow you to talk about the premiums you've paid. Most judges, from my experience, most judges do not let you do that. So it's it really, and again, when I say there's no uniformity, it is not just courthouse to courthouse, but judge to judge. It's just whatever their their own preference is.
0: One of the things that is probably lost on non-lawyers is that an awful lot of what guides us and what we can do is a function of, Opinions from the appeals courts, which is to say you take a case to trial. You're unhappy with the result You go to the court of special appeals. You have an automatic right of appeal there They typically write an opinion that either says you're right or wrong the courts right or wrong and that then becomes something that is guidance for other judges and other lawyers down the road There's a court above that called the Court of Appeals. You have to apply a petition for certiorari, which means you're not guaranteed to get in there. But if they think there's some important issue that they can clarify, they do so. And those opinions are all published something that the public can look up the problem is that there is surprisingly little law on this business of suing your own insurance company and very little guidance from the appellate courts to be helpful it just to me it's a commonsensical thing that when you sue your insurance company you're not suing because they were negligent you're suing because you're saying that they breached their contract you have a contract of insurance you pay two thousand dollars a year for it they breach the contract and it really rarely leaves the bounds of arguing over what your injury is worth in large measure because there are no laws or regulations that are directly applicable to this stuff and the appellate courts really haven't spelled things out very well
1: i couldn't agree more
2: the most recent appellate decisions that i've reviewed suggest that you're not supposed to be talking about uninsured motorist coverage that the case is allowed to be identified before the jury as a case against the insurance company but that the case is actually tried as a car accident case
1: that's correct so you that's why most judges will not allow you to talk about the premiums will not you know now there are ways you can try to get around that but yes. most, they're usually not successful in other words if you have a bad faith claim that you've actually perfected because there's a whole pre-lawsuit set of requirements you have to do in order to go forward with it and you're faith, alleging
2: right? when you say bad faith that the insurance company has failed to do what they're
1: legally required to do that's correct so that's one of the very very small exceptions to, to that but by and large and I'll tell you the other thing too um, the, when you sue let's say let's say you uh, let's say you have more insurance than the person who struck you and you ha- you you need to use that insurance your your own insurance company will as you both know will they will join the fray they will appoint a lawyer even though there's no person there and join the fray and you're still not allowed to say that there's an insurance company you have to say it's an interested party
0: so it, you're saying they double and triple team you and get away with it they oftentimes I, yes. if i
2: could just mention it was probably more than 20 years ago i tried a case just as you described where an at fault driver caused a collision that led to injuries that were worth more than the policy limits And I filed suit in Montgomery County against my client's insurance company. And to make a long story short, during a break in trial, I heard one of the jurors say to another juror, oh, the first lawyer, he's the insurance company lawyer. The other lawyer is his private counsel. Now, no one was told that. No one knew that there were two attorneys representing different entities. The judge didn't tell them. And they were both identified as counsel for the driver. And yet the jury knew this, and we're talking about it. Oh, the guy that's doing the most talking, he's the insurance company lawyer. That other guy's his private lawyer. I found that fascinating that they knew that.
1: Well, it's – jurors aren't stupid. Uh, They may not be wise to everything that's going on in the courtroom uh, or certainly not about the rules of evidence, but – they are bringing in their everyday life experiences and common sense. And, and
2: Do yeah. you believe there's any juror that doesn't know that there's car insurance involved when they go to these trials?
1: Not a, If they are, they're from Mars.
0: Well, since there's yeah. a requirement, a mandatory requirement for insurance, it does seem absurd that you can't mention it. Right. You know, this went by so rapidly, we didn't touch on myriad topics that I intended to, so we're going to have to have Steve Vinnick back. That would, Steve, thank you. Thank you, you
2: before you go, can yeah. you just tell us again the name of your firm and where you're at?
1: Absolutely. Uh, My name, again, is Stephen Vinnick, and I'm a partner with the law firm Joseph Greenwald & Lake. We're located in Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, We have an easy phone number to remember, 301-220-2200.
0: Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. We are Dragon Digital Radio.